Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Great, so uh, thanks so much for coming. It's a small audience, so I will still introduce our great speaker today. Um, we are um, lucky to have Antoine Buiz. Buiz? <laughs> I had forgotten my Dutch <laughs> sort of pronunciation who is a full professor of human rights in a multidisciplinary perspective and director of the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights at Utrecht University, where I also studied. <laughs> so we have that connection here. He's editor-in-chief of the Netherlands Portfolio of Human Rights, a member of the editorial board of the Dutch Human Rights Review, and he hosts a weblog about the European Convention of Human Rights. And he also coordinates Utrecht University's focused research area on cultures, citizenship, and human rights, um, and um, a number of other appointments and conferences that he might tell us about later. Um, but so we are very lucky to have him here today. Um, and I mean, just a reminder: uh, we are still having one more event of OTJR this term. And I think it's next week, in which the details are on the, on the website. And, uh, and then our 10th anniversary event, which is our 10th anniversary, which we will host a public degree. So if anyone is interested in attending, I'll uh, to the people. Um, yes, without further ado, um, Antoine is going to talk to us about reverse transitions. So looking at transitions perhaps from the other side, what happens when countries revert back to non-democratic or less democratic states. And we're really excited to hear about that. Thank you, Elena. Thanks for having me here. And uh, let's make this an informal conversation since we're <laughs> yes. in a limited group. Um, when I was walking here, I thought of uh, this famous quote of Einstein that human minds are like umbrellas that they are only useful when they are open. Um, <laughs> and today I want to address a closing of minds in a way, a closing of societies. And I, th I hope and think it links up to your research group uh, because transitions are usually looked at from the opposite perspective. Um, and in that sense, maybe a bit positivistic that transitions should and are expected always to go towards more open, more democratic, more peaceful societies. But are they really, well, I think all of you know, study specific topics that they are not always, uh, but maybe there's more than just examples here and there, maybe there's a trend. Um, let's see if it moves. A few, a few of those examples of recent years um, about maybe indications for reverse transitions. One is from Ethiopia, a law um, introduced a few years ago on uh, charities and societies, which prohibits any organization from receiving more than 10% foreign funding if they occupy themselves with human rights promotion or human rights activities, amongst others. So that is specific limitations on certain uh, NGOs. Uh, and then more infamous, maybe, a Russian anti-NGO law from five years ago uh, where foreign-funded civil society organizations are required to register uh, when they engage in political activities, which is a very broad notion under the Russian practice. Uh, basically, anything which has to do with any public uh, interest or activity. Um, and they have to register as so-called foreign agents, um, meaning they have a linkage to the 
outside the world, beyond Russia, but um, more specifically, this foreign agency literally means in Russian spy. So it has a very negative connotation, even more than this technocratic term in English might uh, convey. Uh, and thirdly, in the last two years, there were lots of uh, reports of verbal and physical attacks on human rights activists uh, in Azerbaijan and Uzbekistan, uh, which were both attacked but also even criminally prosecuted for the mere fact of having received funding from outside donors for the work they were doing. So just a few um, examples. And that, these kind of reports triggered me to look at a wider issue, and this, this talk is part of a wider research project which I started about half a year ago or so, so quite recently, um, on civic space, so the layer between government and, and individuals, basically. I'll come back to that. Um, and how that is becoming increasingly under pressure. And I'm going to look at three different dimensions of that. Um, the organized, formally organized part of that, so civil society organizations. I'm going to look at the media. Um, and I'm going to look at public protests and demonstrations as kind of three different dimensions of this pressure on civic space. And today I'll focus on the, on the civil society organizations as a, one example where it's become very clear that there is this increasing pressure. And for that purpose, it's maybe important to uh, say a bit more about how we could understand civil society. Um, it's been traditionally uh, defined as the whole space of collective action and organization between the state, the market, and the family or the individual. And we can look at that in very different ways, in basically three dimensions. We could, uh, we could look at the form of civil society, we could look at civil society as interactions between people, and we could look at it as something normative. Um, so about the form, uh, if you study civil society, you could look at uh, formally registered organizations of citizens. But also there are all kinds of actual gatherings if people protest suddenly uh, or they don't formally register but they cooperate on some issue. So that's more about how they are constituted. Uh, a second approach is more looking at what people do uh, collectively. So this is more about the interactions between people and what kind of action they undertake for a certain goal. Uh, and a third very normative vision uh, doesn't is looking at it from a uh, perspective of content, basically. It is not just any interaction between people, it is those uh, organized actions that represent ideals of the society, uh, which can range from civility or tolerance or non-discrimination, non-violence. Uh, and although that seems quite limited, this is actually what international organizations often emphasize, what they not only see as the ideal civil society, but also the one that uh, deserves the most protection. So organizations such as the UN and the Council of Europe, they emphasize that civil society contributes to democracy and to human rights and that therefore it is important that it exists. So there they give very normative concepts to what civil society is. Um, I'll look here in today's talk at organizations, civil society organizations, uh, often of course called NGOs, but since non-governmental is quite a negative definition of what it isn't. Um, I think this is a most, more useful term 
and civil society organizations rather than actors to emphasize the collective element because I think the backlash against uh, civic space and civil society organizations can be explained by the fact that they are collective or that they have a mobilizing um, effect and that is why authorities or others might feel threatened by them and uh, want to react to it. Now what that is civic space? Um, it's kind of the, the symbolic space and also practical uh, in which civil society operates. Uh, so it means the practical room for the action and maneuver that citizens and civil society organizations have in all kinds of ways to speak out, to organize themselves, to protest, to access information from the state, uh, to participate in any decision making. Uh, so civic space has many different potential interactions as I was mentioning this second element of interactions. Um, and I want to study that, because you could do that from many different angles, um, study that from a human rights perspective uh, and linking it to at least three really crucial human rights, freedom of expression, freedom of uh, assembly and freedom of association. Uh, more human rights are obviously also at stake. You could think of the freedom of movement because some human rights activists aren't allowed into a country or aren't allowed to travel outside. Um, there's also a non-discrimination issue because uh, women's groups, youth groups, and minority groups have been found more at risk on average than other uh, groups. Um, and there's a, a privacy dimension as well because surveillance of certain civil society actors has also increased, for example, in the fight against terrorism. Uh, but these freedom of expression, assembly, and association are usually seen as the most important ones. What does that mean for states? Not only that they have to leave civil society alone as much as possible, but even also legally that they are required to provide what is called an enabling environment. So basically positively also protect civil society against threats by others, which could be businesses or armed groups or any others, uh, counter-protests for example. Uh, governments should take an active role in protecting that civic space. And that brings me to the last part of this slide, is that the civic space is not a given which is just squeezed or not squeezed by authorities, by the government, but it is uh, something which is always contested, even in, in peaceful times, even in societies where not much may be happening. Uh, and that means that you could look at this contestation of, of civic space uh, in three different ways. And uh, the authors who are anthropologists, Van den Borg and Terrence, they have um, identified three dimensions, basically, of um, how space is contested, and they say it's formally done. So there are institutions, courts, uh, there are laws uh, through which you can protest and, uh, and argue and discuss. Uh, and secondly, it's very important to look at the way in which uh, things are talked about. So how are civil society actors labeled by the authorities or in the media? And that also affects the kind of space they have to act. Uh, and thirdly, civil society also has their own, they have an active role, they have agency to maintain that space. So if they don't act at all, obviously there's not much space, but also they can uh, shift from one space to another. So very practically, uh, suppose that public demonstrations are forbidden, they could uh, go online. Um, if uh, a website is shut down in a certain country, they could hosted from an external website, which is maybe still accessible, 
so they can shift diff from different arenas uh, to still remain uh, active and somehow effective. And there's also a capacity they themselves have to create different new spaces. Uh, and even in the most formal or extreme way, if everything becomes impossible in the country in which they are active, they could go to the international level and complain about that with the UN, for example. Now, how is, how is this civic space uh, threatened in practice? Um, this movement of um, basically noticing that something was going on which went beyond uh, separate incidents started in 2005, 2004, uh, when the first authors started to write about this and said, well, there are some countries where there are restricted measures on NGOs, uh, but it's still a limited number of countries. That's what authors noted at that time. Uh, and since then, uh, lots of countries have uh, adopted kind of restrictive measures for society organizations and a report of Civicus, which is the umbrella organization globally for civil society, uh, has noted in their annual report of last year that six out of seven people are living in states where civic space is restricted uh, or under serious pressure. So that's actually the large majority of uh, global population. Um, and a different NGO, Freedom House, has noted that there, this last year was the tenth consecutive year of decline of uh, civic space and global freedoms. Uh, and there's even a special rapporteur at the United Nations now on since five or six years on freedom of expression, expression and association. And he's very active, on the civic space, and he is also very vocal about it. And he says that this is part of a global clashing between tyranny and self-determination. Maybe that's a bit overstating it, but it's clear that something is going on. So, noting all of that, uh, could we say that this is part of a, a reverse transition in a way? Um, if we consider transitions to be from armed conflict to peace and from uh, authoritarian rule, dictatorship to democracy, can we then say that all of these trends represent a reverse transition? Well, yes and no. Uh, a lot of political scientists are annually um, jotting and counting the number of uh, dictatorships and full democracies and intermediate uh, hybrid regimes, and they have noted over the last 10, 15 years there is almost no increase in dictatorships, maybe just a few across the globe, yeah. but not that, that's not really the reversal of the trend. It's more that the, in the hybrid regimes, so the big middle group basically, uh, which in numbers has stayed almost the same, um, freedoms have been decreasing a lot. Uh, so there is a trend which you can't see if you make just a threefold division, um, but if you look at more specific indicators and you look at specific human rights, then you can see that. Uh, and maybe even more worryingly, um, also in, in Western democracies, which are considered freer maybe on all kinds of uh, rankings, uh, there is also an increasing number of measures against society organizations. And here again, the fight against terror is a, is a good example where uh, groups in society are monitored, are surveyed. And even their, their activities are restricted. So it is a trend um, which might, in some countries, really lead to um, a return towards much more authoritarian rule, even if it is not yet a, a full dictatorship. And how then does it happen? Well, if you look 
uh, the, at this threefold division, these levels of contestation that I talked about, uh, it happens both in the formal laws and procedures, uh, anti-NGO laws, but also the way in which people can access courts, for example, is restricted. Um, administrative laws such as how do you register your new organization that you want to set up is, is made very difficult in some countries. For example, we have to make plans three, four years in advance with very specific numbers of what exactly you're going to do. Um, or you have to report every year uh, in a very detailed way and if you uh, de uh, deviate from that you can get sanctions or, or there is invasive uh, tax monitoring on these organizations so that their work becomes very difficult uh, and sometimes even through criminal law um, leading figures in civil society organizations are attacked individually for example by um, accusing them of fraud or tax evasion and thereby uh, the work of the whole organization can be crippled because these people are done then uh, basically investing half their time in fighting these legal battles over which, something which is basically a distraction from their actual work. Uh, and you, you all know uh, Navalny in, in, in Russia now is a good example of that who has been again accused of fraud um, and not coincidentally at this moment because he's one of the main contenders against Vladimir uh, Putin. But it also happens in the, in the level of, of the discourse. Um, there is an increasing trend of stigmatizing civil society organizations and actors and human rights defenders as not uh, heroic figures as maybe some people would like to see them, but really as people who either help terrorists or help extremism by the very fact that they criticize authorities or vested interests or powers that be. Um, and if they have any help from outside, so this external funding, that in the discourse can be used to qualify them as enemies of the people, uh, namely as organizations who listen more to donors than to their own uh, society and, and uh, their own constituencies. And in the worst case, even be depicted as traitors. And this is not just done by government figures officially, but also uh, in media, in op-eds, and even by all kinds of, of organized trolls online um, in social media. And then the third level of contestation also the capacity to maintain and create space for civil society and by civil society itself. There it's also becoming more difficult, um, both in a more violent way, people are threatened or their families, their children are threatened, um, or um, in a more um, even sophisticated way, you could say, uh, civil society is co-opted. So there's also countries that actually do not just threaten, but also use a lot of carrots. I'm saying, for example, well, you can't get foreign funding because then we'll put you on a list of foreign agents. But if you accept some funding from the government, actually, then you'll be able to do uh, continue your activities. Uh, or uh, all civil society organizations should are mandatory and should become members of a national umbrella organization in which they have to gather and listen to what the authorities have to say to them and it's officially a dialogue platform but in practice it's also a very good way for authorities to know exactly what civil society is doing uh, or um, people on behalf of the government are nominated in boards of civil society there are all kinds of ways and one author has called this the civility of oppression so oppression in very sophisticated ways which kind of uh, drives and, and entangles civil society uh, very closely to the government uh, in order basically to tame the beast uh, and render them harmless. 
And that also uh, relates basically to um, a division between how the authorities perceive civil society organizations and try to make differences. So, uh, what we see in many countries is that there is a harmless civil society which is doing good things, usually uh, service providing organizations, so organizations who do local uh, social work or healthcare or housing provision or that kind of thing. They are left alone, uh, but all organizations which do some kind of public advocacy, they are targeted, they are criticized. Now, of course, if you look at almost any organization, they do both. Um, but authorities try to make a division there uh, and, and say that some are working for the good of society and others are just being a nuisance, uh, to say the least. Uh, and there's also a very deliberate attempt in many countries to uh, kind of conflate those uh, NGOs, civil society organizations that do public advocacy with political parties, with political activity. And for political parties, there's usually in almost every country specific rules, quite restrictive. Um, so if you align civil society and you give them the same label, you also restrict them. Uh, so if you say that uh, complaining about uh, pollution in the local river is a political activity, uh, then in some countries that means that those civil society organizations have very great difficulties to even uh, function. And maybe the most worrying about all of this is that there is a, a contagion effect. Um, just like civil society itself has spread globally, uh, there is also uh, repression that is learning. Uh, one government is learning from the other. Uh, there's something called culture of imitation or lateral learning between governments. Uh, and one UN rapporteur, the one on human rights and counterterrorism, terrorism said there's a pandemic effect. So if you take that Russian law on anti-NGOs, um, many countries have translated and liter or literally copied almost all of the provisions in that law, for example, uh, to counter local civil society. And uh, there is a famous um, by the still president of Belarus, who's been in power for 25 years, Lukashenko, who said we will have no rose or orange revolutions, nor any banana revolutions, and basically has been implementing all kinds of measures and looking very actively at what, what has been effective in other countries to stifle civil society. Uh, so there's even a book now called The Dictator's Learning Curve, which you can we recommend, which shows how more authoritarian rulers uh, learn from each other's policies and, and make life very difficult for civil society. Now, why, why is this happening now, in the last 10, 15 years? Um, there's a lot of um, literature on this, but not so much yet academic literature. There's a lot of NGO literature from civil society itself noting all these trends. Um, and this is maybe why more researchers need to look at it as well, I would say. But what they do note is that there are some longer term trends which have helped civil society to expand and maybe also thereby explain some of the backlash. And that's uh, first very long term trend, the third wave of democratization since 1970s already, lasting until early 2000s, uh, where democracy was promoted uh, and not just. Um, democracy as in elections, but also uh, having deeper democracy or, or a high quality of democracy, or by also 
the creation of civil society was promoted in many countries, also by outside donors. So uh, development cooperation has also shifted uh, somehow from only providing uh, aid in terms of food uh, and resources to building civil society and rule of law, and that has also uh, increased the number of organizations. And thirdly, information technology has made organizing easier and communication between otherwise quite loose actors easier. So there's been an enormous rise in the number of NGOs in the last 20, 30 years, uh, and then uh, there are some shorter, more recent uh, triggers and trends. Uh, one is counterterrorism since 9-11, as I mentioned. Uh, the second one are the, the color revolutions that Lukashenko was so concerned about in many former Soviet states, uh, where uh, rulers in other states saw, hey, this may actually work. Massive protests can be dangerous because they can topple regimes. Uh, and the same for Arab, the Arab Spring revolutions. Uh, well, as we know, only very few were even temporarily only successful, but they did cause a lot of anxiety among ruling elites. So all of those more recent events have uh, kind of awakened uh, an appetite for monitoring, restricting, etc., what civil society uh, does. So these are some of the explanations given. And then coming, adding to that is, and this goes more into the discourse, that uh, if Civil society organizations cooperate with their uh, peers uh, in other countries or get external funding, uh, then um, this can be attacked as self-determination or sovereignty attacks. So this can be framed as this is again outside actors trying to influence our society, uh, which in almost any country plays out, by the way, because I'm sure also here in the UK, but. Uh, an example in, in Europe is that in Austria, uh, Islamic uh, organizations can't get uh, financial, uh, fun can't get funding from uh, Middle East, for example, uh, Islamic organizations. So even quite democratic countries have limitations where they find wording that there's outside external funding. Um, and in my country, the Netherlands, uh, the Populist Party of Builders, for example, gets some funding from uh, quite conservative U.S. Uh, organizations, and also that is found uh, very is at least is very controversial. Uh, but there is also internal explanations within societies. Um, you could say that the more active or successful civil society has become, the more um, powers that be are actually threatened. So, where there is a lot of clashes, for example, in economic development projects where people locally protest against a new hydroelectric dam or a new road uh, uh, or a new mine, for example, and then it's maybe the security company of the business that wants to establish that new mine that attacks them. Um, so there's a lot of clashes around economic interests as well. Uh, and another internal reason is, is a radical for uh, uh, accountability of organizations, which is also a general thing, uh, which in itself is good, probably. Um, you have money and you use that for activity, so you have to justify why and how you do that. Um, but that is then uh, quite instrumentally also used and arbitrarily, you could say, in the outside or very purposefully <laughs> against uh, uh, organizations that maybe are, again, becoming too much of a nuisance to uh, the state. Uh, and the question for all of these things is, is this just discourse? Is it just saying that it goes against sovereignty? Is it just saying that it's, uh, these organizations are not accountable? Um, 
or is there uh, more than discourse? Is there a really clash of interests underlying that? And there are much more research is still uh, needed. Now, how does this relate to human rights? Um, of course, it affects certain human rights. I mentioned those, but uh, maybe more worrying even, it affects uh, disproportionately uh, organizations in civil society that work to promote human rights. Uh, and there's a third link, uh, is that human rights themselves could be a tool to push back against this pressure on civil society. Uh, so further than just carrots and sticks and lobbying and pushing governments by other governments to stop doing this, uh, human rights litigation, both in countries and, and at regional and UN levels, could be a tool to push uh, back. And the, the picture you see is of uh, the Russian NGO Memorial, where graffiti was found, uh, where it says uh, that they, they love uh, the USA and they are a foreign Agents, see the word agents here. Uh, so they were targeted, uh, so by unknown people. But it's clear that the state at least condoned it as being puppets of the uh, of others of outside lobbies. I'll skip this one, I think, and I'll go to. Um, just one uh, example how uh, you could look at all these trends then more from maybe the legal side, maybe if you want to use human rights as a tool to see what is actually happening, to, uh, to look into these trends a bit more deeply and maybe also to counter them and to put the government's understanding for where exactly the problem is, uh, you could use uh, some of the uh, standard uh, tests for limiting human rights. Um, for example, Articles 10 and 11 of the European Convention on, on Human Rights, which are about freedom of expression and association and protest, uh, they both state that states can only restrict human rights if three conditions are met, if there's a legal basis, if there's a legitimate aim, and if it's really necessary. Um, and I think that although that, that's a very legalistic approach in a way, um, it helps to see uh, where the painful elements are, uh, and also um, literally to use litigation um, to do something about this pressure. So very um, shortly, um, it's always assumed that states should have a legal basis that they restrict human rights. Now, many of these laws that go against civil society organizations are, for example, on purpose kept quite vague. Um, so they say that uh, people should not act uh, out of extremism, which is even a broader and bigger term than terrorism. So many countries have been replacing anti-terrorism laws by even broader anti-extremism laws. Now, I don't know if any of you could define extremism apart from that's not the average. Uh, but if you're an extreme pacifist, would you then be dangerous for the state? Maybe, maybe not. Um, th those are, so there's a conflation and a, a widening and a, and a vagueness in a way of, of legal terms, which makes it very difficult for an, a civil society organization to predict what they could still do and what they can't do. And so from a legal perspective, uh, you could say that those kinds of goals are not really foreseeable. Uh, they can't really guide your behavior. Um, and sometimes even more worrying, uh, 
terms such as political activity are used in these laws to say political activity is forbidden or is restricted. Uh, and then what is political is again interpreted by authorities in an extremely wide way as anything which has to do with any public issue. So the same goes for uh, a government has to show that they have a legitimate aim when they restrict anyone's human rights uh, and human rights treaties such as the European Convention always list a number of aims and they say only these aims can be used, none other, uh, to restrict human rights. Uh, but what do you see in many of these anti-civil society laws uh, that they use, again, quite broad terms which are not the ones mentioned in human rights treaties such as a violation of national, national interests. If, if organizations or people do that, violating national interests, or sometimes it's even broader of national dignity, then uh, the state says we can act. But from a human rights perspective, that would be uh, impermissible. So all kinds of concepts such as sovereignty of state security are, are prone to abuse. Uh, and maybe interestingly for, for non-lawyers among you to know is that usually this test is one that human rights courts and national courts easily, um, well, cross or not skip, but easily say, give the benefit of the doubt to the state. Um, but if you actually look at it in this, this uh, issue of civil society under pressure, there's also a problem in this second kind of uh, restricting justification. And the third one um, is uh, what is usually called the necessity test. So if a state restricts human rights, they have to do that in a proportionate way. Uh, and human rights treaties always phrase that in something has to be necessary, and not just necessary, but necessary in a democratic society. And again, courts usually uh, ignore this latter part of in a democratic society, and they look very technically at is something proportionate to what they aim that the government said they wanted to achieve. Uh, that was security, for example, was proportionate to close down the internet for three weeks, probably not. Um, but what if we look at this proportionality test a bit more at, as in the context in which it is always mentioned in these human rights democratic society? Um, because then you can say a bit more about the fact that, for example, the Council of Europe says that states should uh, respect political pluralism. So the fact that there are different views among these civil society organizations should actually be not just tolerated but promoted by the state. Uh, and so there are many human rights cases in which, uh, for example, the European Court of Human Rights has said that pluralism is part and parcel of democracy. Uh, and you could add even that some of the things that are usually uh, used in this proportionality test uh, by human rights courts uh, gain even more salience in this, on this issue. For example, uh, there's this notion of a public watchdog, which was used at the start used only for media, if media report on public uh, issues of, issues of uh, importance, then they can be seen as public watchdogs and therefore deserve more protection, meaning the state can't as easily restrict them as, for example, the gossip uh, media. But if you widen that, uh, you could say, and there are a few cases where this has happened, where not just media, but also civil society organizations can be considered to be such watchdogs. And if you do that, then they deserve additional protection. And the same goes for another uh, famous notion from human rights law, and that's that uh, 
some actions by states may have a chilling effect. So if you punish one person, this may have a wider chilling effect if you, uh, uh, for example, censor one kind of publication in one newspaper that might have a chilling effect on other people writing about the issue. Um, now here in this trend of pressure on civil society, I would say it's even going one step further already. It's not just unintended chilling effects of, of measures by states, but there you could have the intent is to chill. Um, so the intent is to make sure that civil society um, becomes less critical, is self-censoring, etc. Uh, so maybe you could argue that from a legal perspective, uh, that would be an aggravating circumstance to be quite uh, strict in scrutinizing what the state is doing by courts. So that's a, a different way of looking at it, using a very traditional notion of chilling effect and going one step further and looking at chilling intent. Now why does this all matter? This is the last slide. Um, one is that in the civil society, that's where human rights contestation happens. So we need that, uh, and we will come back again to transitions. This is the space where it's assumed that there are peaceful ways to resolve clashes of interests. Uh, so if you limit these conduits of uh, contestation, such as protests, such as going to a court, etc., then you limit uh, human rights in general and you also make it more difficult for a society to go towards a more open society. Uh, it links to the quality of democracy and uh, I've, I found a very interesting um, claim quote from uh, a perspective where you might not expect it, and that's the Davao Economic Global Forum, where the most important political and economic actors, as you know, uh, convene annually, and even in their words, they say that this squeezing of civic space can um, undermine socioeconomic stability, uh, and therefore be a risk for businesses uh, and for states uh, for, to increase geopolitical and social conflict. So even they are now noticing it, um, Mean that even from the, a risk assessment perspective for investors, etc., it now has uh, an importance and it has come uh, on the radar. So, that's in a nutshell uh, a worrying trend. Uh, there's a lot of reporting about it, but not much research about it yet, so I think there's a lot of work to be done. Thank you. Um, 